I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with V.C. Chickering, who's the author of Twisted Family Values and Nookie Town. She has written for Comedy Central, MTV Lifetime, TLC, Discovery, Nick Mom, and Oxygen Television Networks, as well as for Cosmo, The Washington Post, and other publications. She has a local newspaper column called Pissmonger and writes a blog. She also writes and performs original songs for the alt-bluegrass indie jazz band Tori Erstwhile and the Montes. A graduate of NYU, she currently lives with her family in New Jersey. So welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. So here's my first crazy question. On your book, it's VC Chickering, but that is not your name. Are we allowed to use your real name here? Well, how does what? Who who are you? Who are you? I am a ninja. <laughs> so VC Chickering actually is my legal name. My legal name is Victoria Chickering O'Connell. Okay, and I worked professionally and wrote professionally as Tori or Victoria Chickering until I got married, which was very late. I was thirty-five, so I've never not published anything under Chickering or VC. I switched to VC from Tory because I wanted to put a little bit of distance between who I was in my community as the mother of a child and who I was as a writer because of the nature of the books I was writing. I thought that would be wise and thoughtful and mindful of also his place in the community. Interesting. Yeah. Right before I turned on the recording here, Tori showed me a picture of her son and said she was using it to remind her not to say anything to, uh, I don't know, yeah, controversial. And, uh, <laughs> I'm like, Ooh, what would you say? Ooh, like, that's what I want to hear. Let's go right to there. <laughs> anyway, her son's adorable at age 14, 16, sorry. Okay, so you disguised yourself for his sake, and so, yet you wrote these books that well, are— so that so what was happening at the time is Fifty Shades of Grey had mm-hmm. blown up. And everyone from, you know, 17 to 87 had read those books. And I thought, wow, the mindset of the, your average reader is a lot more open and available to taboo concepts than I gave it credit for. And I think the whole industry was sort of blown away by how they had underestimated the, the appetite of the reader. So piggybacking on that new information, I thought, well, I'll take on, I'll take on an experience I was going through (laughs) at being a recent divorcee. And what was happening is I went, I went through divorce. It's pretty hideous for about two years. It's, you're just. I went through a divorce. Okay. So it's the worst, the worst imaginable. You really wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. Someone literally told me at the beginning, the next two years, just wait for two years. I was like, two years? I know. You think, and you think you'll never get through it. And then you do. But it really is two years of absolute misery, abject misery. And all and every every shade of misery with tears and depression and weight loss and all these hideous horrible things. Weight loss was so, not a bad thing. That, that was 
was like that was the major perk for me. Which PS comes back after two years. So once you feel better again. So as I was hitting my stride, finally coming out of that two year place experience, I was would not have kids with that husband. I do. My son. Oh, your son is from your first husband. Okay. Correct. So I was coming out of that experience and finding finally finding my balance and my my new normal and my new, the new rhythm of my life. And part of that was reintegrating myself in society and going out with women again and going to lunches and having glasses of wine with, with folks. And what would happen, the typical scenario is that, you know, women, that we come together and we say hello and, you know, cute outfit and I love your new haircut. And then we go around the circle, what's new with you? My husband's knee surgery, I'm refinishing the basement, my son's lacrosse tournament. Everybody kind of goes around the circle and it would get to me. And I would say, I'm doing pretty okay now. I'm, I've really found my equilibrium. The only problem is that I'm incredibly horny all the time. <laughs> and that's okay to say if your son is listening? Well, okay. it's part of life. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's a legitimate, I mean, what I said to him getting ready for this book to be published is people have sex. I mean, it's, it's a part of life. We wouldn't be here. And this is what you can tell your friends. Like, we wouldn't be here if your parents hadn't had sex. So it's okay to be sex positive. It's okay to, to, to want that, to have that urge and to want that experience. Obviously, with a million other caveats when you're entering that world. But I, as an adult, I'm allowed to be horny. So I would say this out loud. I would say I'm just incredibly distractedly horny and I, I I would love to find somebody just to have sex with and then out you go and then leave and then so I can you know stay and eat a ham sandwich and watch television by myself and everybody would laugh and then somebody would say you know you should come have sex with my husband that would be so great <laughs> and then everybody would laugh and then somebody else would say you know what that would be fantastic if you could just swing by the house once a week and have have at it with Mark, and then somebody would say, and then Steve, how about Steve once a month? So the joke was, I'd say, all right, well, how about Steve on every other Tuesday, and then Mark once a week, and then da, da, da. And this was a joke, and everybody laughed. And then, of course, we moved on to whatever the next topic was. And that joke happened so many times in that year after when I would say, mm-hmm. I'm just distractedly horny, somebody in the circle regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of who the woman, the person was and that type of group, someone would say, you, I would love it if you'd have sex with my husband and take some of the pressure off. And it was always met with laughter, but it always happened. That joke was always made, not by me. Did you start sleeping with her husband? No. Are you sure? Now is the time. Let's just get it out there. How was it with Mark and Steve? Exhausting. No, you were um, so busy. Now I was. Now you have no friends. But it really, like, because if that joke hadn't been made so many times by so many married women who'd been having the same predictable sex with their husbands for four years, ten years, fourteen, twenty-eight years. If that joke hadn't been made, I would not have gotten the idea and the impetus to write my first book, which was the jumping off point, which is basically women at a luncheon, the joke is made, then they disperse, but one of the women follows her back to her car in tears. 
and says, I'm, I think I'm serious. I think I want you to have sex with Ted because I don't have, I'm exhausted. My kids are so little. I don't have time. I'm not even interested. And I think he's going to leave me. And I trust you. And I know you're not interested in Ted. And I know you're not going to break up my marriage. And the protagonist, Lucy, is great for her because these guys are clean. They're disease-free. They've been in monogamous relationships. So what happens is they try it. And it's a win-win-win. And everybody's thrilled. Ted's happy. It's sanctioned infidelity. You know, Nancy's kind of happy to have some of the work offloaded. And uh, Lucy's thrilled to get her rocks off. And so these two groups of women come together in this small community, and they create an underground barter system whereby the wives subcontract the horny divorcees to have sex with their husbands so they don't have to as often. And it works for a little while, and then it goes to hell in a handbasket. Wow. (laughs) That's a great idea for a book. It's pretty funny. Yeah. And it's hilarious. And it's seven women that are funny and sexually viable in their 40s. And it's a really enjoyable meditation on marriage and fidelity and monogamy and sex in this country versus other cultures versus other countries. What's really important in a marriage, what can be forgiven, Mm -hmm. what shouldn't be forgiven. It's a really fun read. And there was a bidding war in Hollywood. Three different production companies wanted it. And Warner Brothers, it was Warner Brothers and NBC Universal and uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's production company. And they were vying for it. And Warner Brothers won the option, but they didn't exercise it. So it came back to me. But there's another guy right now in Hollywood and he's shopping it around for a TV show. And But it's, I mean, as far as an ensemble comedy, imagine seven of your favorite actresses in their 40s. It's perfect. Who get to be funny and smart and sexy. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Amazing. So that would be really fun. But what I was going to say, so about my son, to to wrap it into my son. So when I was getting this idea, Mm -hmm. I reached out to my friend Larry Bloom, who's Judy Bloom's son. Oh. And I said to Larry, how old were you when Wifey came out? And he said I was like 12, I think. And my son was going to be 12 when Nookie Town was going to be published. And so I said, well, what was that like for you to be 12 and have Wifey hit the book stands? And he said it was fine. I wasn't even aware of it. I was 12. I was in middle school. I was so immersed in my own world. I didn't care what the parents, what the grown-ups around me were doing or talking about or reading. So I said, well, I'm about to write this book, Nookie Town. And I sort of told him about it. And he said, go for it. He said, I'm fine. <laughs> Worked out for me. So I talked to my son about it. And, and little drips and drops, like every six months, I would sit him down and I would say, so do you understand that, you know, grown-ups have sex? Like I was very, like, mm-hmm. I deployed tiny little bits of, <laughs> you know, information to kind of prepare him for what would happen. And then you said, and then people stop Having sex? Are they married for a family? I said, well, people talk, but I said that people, I said, this book is really boring. There are no dragons. There are no car chases. Like nobody Mm -hmm. that you know is going to want to read it. But parents do talk a lot about relationships and they talk about, you know, money Mm -hmm. and religion, you know, politics. I said, these are all topics that are in my book and actually not He's politics. Like, whatever. He was like, whatever, who game? cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it really did kind of work out. And, and I gave him some, we did some role playing, like what, what will, ha- what would you say if somebody comes at you about your mom's book? 
So I sort of, we worked on writing him responses, you know, like the writer's room. I said, you can just say, my mom's a writer and I'm really proud. She got a book published. I'm really proud. Not everybody gets to do that, you know. Or you can say, everybody has sex. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for sex. So, you know, he had some answers, but they didn't come into play. Good. Yeah. It was really nice. And then when... So then when did you start writing Twisted Family Values? So then, well, I had a two-book deal with St. Martin's Press. Okay. So they were like, what's next? And I thought, hey, uh, how about another taboo, since that was so much fun to explore what are the other American taboos out there. And the Twisted Family Values came about from a guy that I dated years ago for about 10 minutes. He told me a story about a flirtation he had with his first cousin, when they were young and the sort of innocent childhood exploratory, you know, that kids do and how it just carried on for longer than decorum Mm -hmm. would allow or should allow at the time. And I thought, boy, that might be an interesting juxtaposition to, to take that scenario and drop it in a well-to-do community. How would that family and how would that community respond to something that in theory, shouldn't be done. So when I read it, I was like, she had a really hot cousin. (laughs) I know people have said that. No, No, I mean, my cousins are lovely, but they know, (laughs) they know, you know, the definition of fiction. We, you know, it was really more from that guy. And then, and then what happens is as a writer, you know, you get this kernel of an idea as what happened with Nookie Town, with Mm -hmm. the conversation with the women. And so with the, that guy, you float it, you float it, you do sort of, you, you field test it and you put it out in the world like market research and you sort of run it by people. You know, have you ever had a hot cousin? Have you ever had a crush on a cousin? And if people had all across the board said no, then that idea would have died because, you know, where do you go with that? But because so many people said, oh yeah. And then I would say, did you ever make out with your cousin? And then some, some of them would say, oh, uh-huh. And then, then when I get enough, I feel like I've gathered enough research, I bring it into my therapist, who's a fantastic resource if you're writing about secrets hmm. and desire, because people tell their therapists everything. So I could take these ideas I was conjuring, this kind of notion that was simmering, and bring it into my therapist and say, hey, do people bring to you the secret that they have slept with their first cousin? And if she says, oh, yes, that happens, then I know I'm onto something. If she were to say, no, that never happens, then I would say, okay, well, come up with something else. Go on to my next story, because I have like four or five ideas. But when she said, oh, yeah, that's a thing, I said, is it? She said, "Uh uh-huh. I said, okay. There's something there. There's something there that people don't talk about, that people don't want to think about. And then, of course... You couple that with the influx of all these wonderful immigrant families that we are getting to know that our awareness has broken open, thank God, over the generations. We are much more, I think, aware of the immigrant experience and what people are bringing from other cultures into the American culture. And what we're learning is that it's not that unusual in most other cultures. It's not that big a deal. And if you ask a group of women you know, at, at cocktails, they'll say, oh, yeah, my grandparents. Oh, yeah, my great-grandparents were cousins. Oh, yeah, my great, 
you know, great aunt and great uncle from the old country. So there are a lot of stories about folks, you know, back in the day where that was done. So it's not that crazy. And then you take these nuggets of ideas and secrets that people have, but then you put it in a context where you explore all these other factors, like this family and twisted family values that's going through sort of a decline through the generations and the different parenting styles and so much more stuff, sexual abuse. I mean, there's so much stuff you put in here. Yeah. So how did you start writing fiction like this? Like you've written these two really thought-provoking, interesting books. Like, where did this come from? <laughs> you just, like, had them all in your head? Did you take a class? Like, how did you, how, like, explain. I wrote forever and ever. Before I ever called myself a writer, I realized I have been a writer my whole life. I started writing notes for my girlfriend to pass to her boyfriend in fifth grade. I was the Cyrano. You know, I had pen pals like crazy. I filled journals like mad. In college, I wrote plays. I wrote musicals. I went on. After college, I worked um, in cable television. And I wrote for MTV and Comedy Central and Lifetime and all these networks. And I was writing personal essays, and I had things published in the Washington Post magazine and Cosmo and Bust. I wrote for Bust, which was really fabulous in the 90s. So I was always writing, but I didn't consider myself a writer until more recently. And I think it was that experience of the universe almost shoving this idea at me, this Nookie Town idea. I'm the gal to write it. Like, clearly... The universe wants me to write this book. So um, I sat down and and actually, here's another wonderful kismet moment. I was dropping my son off at school and I passed another writer on the, there are a lot of writers in in the community that I live in. It's a wonderfully arts-rich community. And she passed me by and I said, you know, I'm thinking of trying a novel. I've never written long form. I've written so many other forms, formats, never taken on. I've written screenplays, but I'd never taken on a novel. And she said, oh, there's a great book you should read. It's called No Plot, No Problem. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. And she's like, pick it up. It's gonna, it'll be really useful. And so I thought, okay, great. I picked it up. And I am telling you, like that moment, the fact that I crossed her path in that moment, and I picked up that book, but this guy named Chris Batty was living in San Francisco years ago in a community of writers. They spend their all day in a coffee shop talking about this novel that they're writing and not writing the novel. And so he said, I think this, I'm calling bullshit on all of us. We should be, we're not writing. Why aren't we writing? This is ridiculous. Let's do this. We need a deadline. Let's pick a month. November was coming up. We'll start at the first of the month. We're going to write 1,700 words a day for 30 days to the exclusion of everything else. And at the end of the month, we'll have a 50,000-word first draft. And then we can call ourselves novelists and stop talking about finishing our novel. So he did that. And I think a bunch of them started and a, a, a many of them sort of fell away as the month. It's hard to do. But at the end, a small number of them had this 50,000-word first draft. And then I think they did it the next year, and there were more of them that tried it, maybe 28, and then 46, and then 92. And now it's this global movement, and it's called NaNoWriMo, which is short for National Novel Writing Month. And there is a book, which I just read the book, called No Plot, No Problem. And it's marvelous. It gets you started. It gets you psychically sort of 
in the mindset to do this thing. He basically posits that we can do anything if we know there's an end date. We know it's going to end. We can get on a diet. We can do a cleanse. We can train for a marathon. There are things that we can do. So he helps the writer get in the groove, get excited. He cheers them on. You're going to love it. You're going to come out of the gate strong. It's going to feel so good. And then you, <laughs> and then it's day 10. You want to quit so badly. You hate this. You're miserable. So he talks you through the process. Um, and I also read On Writing by Stephen King, which I'm sure mm-hmm. many people have brought up, and Bird by Bird mm-hmm. by Anne Lamott. So I wrote the, read the On Writing, she the Chris Batty. I interviewed her. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so I did the No Plot, No Problem to start. And then as I began, I was reading On Writing and Bird by Bird at night. So, And really, it is a, a pretty intense. Everybody has to be on board. Your family, your spouse. It's like mommy's going to do this thing. And we're all in support of mommy, which means the kids are going to be a little filthy for a while. <laughs> and the food's going to go bad in the fridge. And, you know, but we, we understand that mommy needs to do this. So that worked for me and I finished, but I I was only about halfway done with the story. So I took another three months to write the other 50,000 words. So by um, the holidays, I had a hundred thousand words. First draft. Wow. Yeah. And then on that, did you sell both the two book deal? So then I think I did two, you know, I let, uh, you always give it to your friends to read. Mm -hmm. You give it to an odd number of readers so that you don't get a, you don't get two people love this character and two people don't. You always want it to be an odd number. So three love them, two don't. So the three win. Interesting. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> I think that was a Stephen King, maybe. I can't remember. But I had readers read various drafts and say, and I would say, what do you think? Is there something here? Should I keep going? And they would say, yeah, this is really funny. Keep going. So then I've reached out to an agent and she took me on, which was marvelous. And then I did a, another draft or two f- with her and then I found a publisher, which is another hilarious and bizarre story of kismet and the universe, and then did another draft or two for her. So I think there was 11 drafts. But my agent negotiated a two-book deal with St. Martin's Press, so that was pretty exciting. But getting to St. Martin's was, came out of uh, Hurricane Sandy. How so? Because friends of mine, we all lost power, and they went to Starbucks to use power, and the Starbucks was full of people, and all the, the outlets were crowded. And so as they were leaving, they ran into another couple that they only knew from a, a once-a-year annual Halloween party. And the couple said, well, we have power. Come back to our house. So they went back. They opened up their laptops. And to make small talk, my girlfriend, Rebecca, said to the guy, what do you do for a living? And he said, I work at Macmillan. I turn books into movies. And she said, oh, my friend just wrote the funniest book. You've got to read this book. And she told him the story. And then he found me at the Halloween party a week later in full costume and said, I want to read your book. So what I take away from that is that friends, helping friends, is such a wonderful and key part of a lot of fortuitousness in life, I think. Friends introducing friends to guys that they think are good men, Friends, and you know, if she hadn't spoken up, I mean, she really got the ball rolling. She's kind of incredible. 
I hope you put her in the acknowledgments. Every time. I do. <laughs> I do. Both books. And I thank her and I gave her flowers and maybe a pie. And I mean, when I see her from time to time, I say, you know, you made this happen for me. So cool. And I'm so grateful. Aww. So it's marvelous what we can do for people without even realizing. It doesn't cost money. It's not a great effort. It's just opening your mouth and putting two people together. It's, mar- it's such a wonderful thing. And what about now? Are you working on another one? Yes. Yeah. So I'm switching genres. I'm going to jump to romance okay. because I do love... Oh, that's right. I heard... What's it called? Wait, I have... Definitely. Wendy Wanderlust. Yes, I have it right here. Wendy Wanderlust. Wendy Wanderlust. Um, I love a happy ending. I love this notion of things working out. I want to believe that everything works out <laughs> desperately. I cling to that belief. So it's not such a stretch for me to switch gears and try my hand at a story where there will be this wonderful tension and there will be, you know, obviously more sex. My editor has always said that I, I write a pretty good sex scene. So capitalizing on that and just enjoying that format of just that fun of falling for someone and maybe the bump, the bumps that, that happen along the way until you really kind of come together. So I thought that would be really... So I decided to take on the late 80s and the Europass. It's about two best friends who go to Europe in the late 80s on Europasses. And they get into trouble with, like, hot foreign men on the back of mopeds. And they, they're going to zip around, and it's going to be like a cat and mouse thing. And one of them's going to get her backpack stolen, so she's going to have to busk. So then my songwriting, so I've already started writing little songs that come into the story. So um, it'll be, it's already really fun to write. It's, I'm 13,000 words in. Wow. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time here, and I had all these <laughs> questions about <laughs> Twisted Family Values, but I much prefer just hearing your whole story of writing Aww. and how you got here. And, Should um, I t- can I tell you real quick what it's about? Yes, I tell us what it's about. We only I? talked about the cousins oh, right, in general. Right. Okay. But give a synopsis, why not? Well, Twisted Family, because it's such a good book. It's a, wait. And I feel like the characters in the story are so real and like just, you know, I even just picked it up again and I felt like I could see all of them like coming back. I've heard that. People said that they read it quickly and that they feel very immersed. Yes. And yeah, they're very part of the family. Mm-hmm. Like they just feel... Yeah. That they're at the kitchen table talking yeah. to these people. It's nice to be a part of someone else's issue. <laughs> I know, right? It's always, yeah. <laughs> you just put a little distance <laughs> a little from your distance. own. I love to say it's the story of secrets, expectations, and maddening desire among four generations of a funny, imperfect, dysfunctional family in an up- upscale New Jersey suburb, and it takes place between 1968 and 2014. So it's 50 years in one family and you sort of you jump around and you get to remember the uh, hors d'oeuvres and the outfits and the music that was kind of part of your world swirling around at the time it lines up with my age my generation so they're toddlers in the late 60s kids in the 70s they go to high school and college in the 80s and then up until 2014 it's really fun it's a really fun ride yeah, it's a great book. It was I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for I coming know. on Mom's No Time to Read Books. <laughs> this has been so great. Thank you for having me. Okay. I really appreciate it. 
This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 